0: Hello, I'm Gretchen Gerzina, Paul Murray Kendall Professor of Biography at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and author of many books on Black history, including Black England and more recently editor of Britain's Black Past. Welcome to episode two of the BP2 podcast on the Black Presence in British Portraiture Network. In this episode, we'll be discussing Jan Gossart's 1510 portrait of the Adoration of the Kings, and hearing readings from the New Testament that inspired the work. To discuss the work, I have two members of the network with me, the art historian and lecturer Leslie Primo, who chose the work, and the art historian and author Richard Stemp. I'll let them introduce themselves.
1: Hello, my name is Leslie Primo. I'm an art historian and lecturer, and I've lectured uh, across uh, many of the um, august institutions uh, here in London at the National Gallery, the National Portrait Gallery, the Tate Britain, Tate Modern, and various other galleries around the country as well. Uh, I'm currently uh, in the middle of writing a book called um, A New History of British Art from uh, Renaissance to Abolition, due to be published in spring 23 by Thames and Hudson.
2: Hello, I'm Richard Stemp. I'm really looking forward to discussing this brilliant painting. Like Leslie, I've lectured across many of London's great art institutions, and particularly the National Gallery where the painting is held, uh, where I've worked for over 25 years now and have shown it to a wide range of different audiences. I've written books on the Italian Renaissance and on churches and
0: cathedrals. Thank you for that, for both of you. And I'm so happy to have you here for our discussion. But before we start, Here's a brief description of the work we'll be delving into.
3: Jan Gossert, The Adoration of the Magi. On first viewing of this picture, it is as though we have just arrived at a precise moment in time, as our eyes gradually become accustomed to a crowded scene in which we see many people in a variety of multicolored and richly embroidered costume converging on a ruined classical building from both sides of the scene. The sky above is populated with a heavenly host of angels who not only wear individually and distinctively coloured decoratively patterned costumes, but also display multicoloured wings. As an observer, we seem to be slightly elevated, looking directly at a woman in a copious gown, resplendent in blue, it falls in myriad folds to the ground. This is the Virgin with Christ child upon her lap, at the centre of this composition, for this is an adoration of the Magi. But the colour and realism of this picture has another surprise in store for the discerning viewer, an accurate portrayal of a black king seen on the left. For all the many versions of this story, stretching back over millennia to as early as the 4th century, rarely does a black king appear, and rarely is he observed so accurately from the life as we see here. The physiognomy of this figure is undoubtedly that of a real black man. This can only mean that Gossert had access to a black model in Europe in the early 16th century. It is known that thousands of black people were in Europe at this time and have been brought to Europe as servants, or slaves, or both. But some artists were also utilising this resource as models, including the painter and engraver from Nuremberg, Albrecht Dürer, 1471-1528. to 1528. It is also known that Dürer was a great admirer of Gossert's work, and vice versa. In fact, this mutual admiration between artists can be said to be expressed in the two dogs seen in the foreground of this picture, because the grey dog on the left is a direct copy taken from an engraving by Dürer called Santustace, and the brown and white dog on the right is a direct copy taken from an adoration of the Magi engraving by another German artist called Martin Schongauer, who Dürer and Gossert greatly admired. So it does not take a great stretch of the imagination to suppose that if Dürer was using black slaves as models, and Gossert was aware of his work, and therefore his working practices, that he too might also avail himself of a black slave for the very same purposes as Dürer did. But this is where this picture gets even more interesting. On close examination of the red material hanging just below the black king's crown, we see some gold text spelling the name Gossard. There are only two black people in this picture, the king, and one member of his entourage immediately behind him, and around the collar of this other black man is also spelt the word Gossard. This is a rare example in Gossard's work, where he has not only signed his name twice, but also on people, rather than on an object. Significantly, we know that slaves were sometimes given collars to wear with their given European names on them, meaning there is a distinct possibility that these signatures are not only declaring that Jan Gossert made these pictures, but also declaring that he owns these objects that he has signed. These are just some of my observations and thoughts on this fascinating picture that has been for a number of decades the de facto image of this subject for schools across the nation. Indeed, that's where I first saw it. And it was this picture that also inspired our school play you can guess which part I played.
0: Leslie, what inspired you to choose this wonderful work? It's so full of drama and movement and action.
1: Well, I'm... Please, you asked me that, Gretchen. Actually, um, the, the drama and action is really part of this work, and that indeed is part of the inspiration for this work. Um, but I was inspired to choose this work because it's a work that I'm really familiar with, and indeed it's a work that I've, I've been looking at since my school days. In fact, I was uh, taken on a school visit to the National Gallery, and this is one of the paintings we saw. Uh, so it is a work that has been with me for a long time. I, of course, subsequently ended up working at the National Gallery for uh, almost 18 years. Uh, so this is a work that... that... That would uh, uh, never cease to uh, fascinate me, really, and because there's so much detail. There's so much to see in the work, and there's so much to talk about. And uh, as I say, it's a picture that I've known um, for pretty much most of my life.
0: Leslie, there were several things I noticed when I first saw this painting. And the first is that it's set in a background that looks like it's dilapidated buildings without a roof and open to the sky. Why is Mm -hmm. that?
1: yeah i mean this is something that is quite common of um quite a long a wide variety of paintings of this particular subject and it's something that they all have in common that they're set in uh, ruins or dilapidated buildings etc and so on. Now, the reasons around this um, are not reasons that are actually uh, ever um, detailed in any scripture. But the idea behind this is that most of these ruined buildings tend to be classical structures. And you can see with this one, there's a classical column and a classical arch at the back of the picture just above the head uh, of the Virgin. These classical ruins, in in a sense, are supposed to represent the old world order. And of course, the old world order is the Roman world. And what we're looking at really with these destructions, of these buildings is a, the destruction or demise of the Old World Order. And such a demise of the Old World Order, of course, is then um, brought into sharp relief uh, with the uh, New World Order, that being Christianity. So essentially what these ruins are supposed to depict is that Christianity has triumphed over the old world order, uh, of course, of the uh, Roman world, which formerly, of course, persecuted Christians. Uh, It's a a rather uh, grandiose way of uh, saying we've we've won, uh, but that essentially is what the ruined buildings and dilapidated structures are all about.
0: That was a really interesting overview of the background of the painting. Richard, do you have the same take on it as he does?
2: Yes, absolutely. One of the things that fascinates me is we have a very set image for those people familiar with the Christian tradition of what the adoration of the kings involves. The fact there are three kings, uh, the fact that Jesus was born in a stable, but the number three, the fact that they're kings or the stable, for that matter, are not mentioned in the Bible. And it's part of what we learn from the visual tradition rather than from the scriptural tradition. And the sense of Jesus coming as the new order uh, to rebuild rather than to destroy. It's one of the things he says in the Bible, I've come to, dis- to to rebuild rather than to destroy. You see it visually in the painting.
0: So with this background being so open to the skies and the angels flying, we do have sort of a cast of thousands here. There are a lot of people crowded into this image. Why is that, Leslie?
1: Well, uh, I think that... that uh, With all, uh, when you want to make things important, what you need is an entourage. The more people there are, the more important you become. So these kings have their individual entourage, and of course it creates an importance. But of course the kings and their entourage equally also create an importance for the centre of this. The image, of course, the Virgin Mary and the Christ child. And that's where the angels come in as well. So everything is focused on uh, the people in the centre. The the perspectival view of the picture takes us towards the, uh, the Christ child and the Virgin Mary. So more people means well more importance and um, you know it works a lot doesn't it really you know if we if you go out on the town with lots of people around you you seem really important don't you really because you've got an entourage and uh, that's what's going on here. Yes, I think what, what do you think Yeah no Richard?
2: absolutely it is that sense of um well any important people any celebrities they always go around with some sort of posse the mm. bigger the entourage the more important they are mm. but I'm really interested that you notice that it's so open at the top Gretchen because Gossart really divides this into the, the the earthly and the heavenly realm. The openness allows all of those angels flying around uh, to be seen. And directly above Jesus is the star which led the kings there. And below that is the dove representing the Holy Spirit. So one of the things the openness is emphasising is that God has come down to earth to become human.
1: Hmm, Yeah. I I agree, Richard. Yeah, that's a very good discussion. Absolutely. Yeah, description, indeed. I mean, I do also believe that this is a picture that has a lot in common with many adorations, and that is that there's always some sort of um, uh, premonition uh, in adorations, uh, some sort of uh, uh, idea of the future of the Christ child. And that's where the wonderful um, uh, soldiers coming over the hill at the extreme right of the picture you can see soldiers coming over a hill with their banners unfurling in the wind. They take the crowd behind that king all the way back to the hill. And of course those soldiers coming over the hill are a, the premonition of Jesus being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. So we have this idea of uh, the idea of a future uh, of the Christ child already implicit uh, in this. And of course that's why you can have lots of crowds of people because you then can add in the the idea of what happens next, as it were.
2: It's absolutely fascinating the way he, he brings in different elements of the story, because way, way, way in the background, there are two shepherds in the field looking up at the angels, and the angels are saying, Jesus is born, uh, go and say hello. Whereas in the foreground, you get the, the, the kings who've arrived, and, and theoretically, according to the church calendar, they won't get there for another 12 days.
0: <laughs> so that's the top of the building and the skies and the right hand and the left hand and all sorts of movement implied by that. But there's also a bottom and a floor, which is paving stones, some of the which seem to be transparent. So I'm trying to understand, there's no roof, really, but there is a, a floor. Is that how this works? How, I just would like to understand how the buildings and the structure of the picture are put together in that way. The
2: floor is quite fascinating because like the rest of the building, it's ruined. And there's a sense that what Gossart did first was to lay down the perspective. You have all the parallel lines going to a vanishing point, which directs your attention. And it directs your attention towards the face of the Virgin Mary, really. The vanishing point's just to the side of that. But having painted the ruined floor tiles, um, Gossart must have thought that it wasn't ruined enough. So he painted some more on top. And over the time, uh, over time, they've gone transparent and you can see through them. That wasn't what he'd intended, though. But he's got a real fascination with material here because it's sort of fairly far back in the building. You've got shepherds leaning on a wooden fence and then come a little bit closer and the walls are made of brick, get a bit closer still to us, the viewer, And the walls are made of stone. And then the kings are holding gold. And just that little bit closer to us is the baby Jesus. Mm. So the sense that coming closer towards us, things get more and more materially valuable. And the most valuable thing is Jesus
1: Yes, yes, good point, Richard. Yes, indeed. And I think, as Richard has um, also intimated there, this um, painting is actually in the process of disappearing before our eyes. No um, pigments actually last forever. Eventually, everything disappears. And these transparent paving stones are, in fact, what we are a result of what we're seeing of, of the paint becoming more and more translucent over a period of time. Uh, and we get to see, as Richard has said, we get to see his uh, the decisions made by um, uh, Gossart and the changes of mind made by Gossart. Often these changes of mind are given the Italian word, of course, um, uh, that the idea that these are pentimenti uh, and the rough translation uh, means Meaning, uh, meaning that you sort of you've, you you repent. In other words, you've made a mistake, uh, effectively. Uh, so we're starting to see those uh, pentimenti in the foreground along the front front of this picture, as it were. Yeah.
0: The other thing that strikes me is obviously that there is a black king in this painting, and he's very elegantly dressed. But I suspect that there was no mention in the biblical story of having a black king. So I would love to hear more about his place in the painting as a painting, but also how he came to be represented so often in art of this period.
1: Well I think that's a good uh, point to make and uh, of the black king's presence. Um, the, the, The truth of the matter in fact is that there are in fact hundreds of paintings that survive and images of the Adoration of the Magi where there is no black king. Uh, So, in fact, there's probably just as many adorations of the Magi with no black king as there are with black kings in them. Uh, So it's not a given. And of course, the reason why it's not a given uh, is, of course, there's no mention of a black king in any biblical text. So it has been inserted. And as far as we know, the black king came to uh, fruition somewhere around the second century A.D., And uh, uh, two scholars uh, or theologians, should I say, in particular are responsible for the introduction of a black king, Uh, one of them called uh, uh, um, Oregon and another theologian called Tertullian. Uh, And they seem to be uh, the ones who are responsible not only for the um, appearance of a black king in an image, but also the names of the magi as well, which also are not mentioned in the biblical text either. Richard.
2: The things was well, because the Bible says that wise men came from the East, mm. uh, they were promoted to kings, really, partly to fulfill something which is in the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, which says kings shall kneel down before him, or something like that. And so they thought, well, which were the people who were the kings who were kneeling down before him? They could only think that it would be the, th- the wise men. Again, it doesn't say three. But if they were kings, where were they kings of? There's all sorts of reasons why there should be three of them. They brought three gifts, gold, frankincense and myrrh. But mm-hmm. maybe they were the kings of the three continents, uh, Europe, Africa and Asia. Mm-hmm. And so the black king is there as as the king of Africa, effectively.
1: Yes, yeah, interesting. Richard, the, uh, uh, the Old Testament describes the, the places that they came from as Tarshish, Sheba and Seba. They <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Where are they? I suspect that Sheba is probably Ethiopia.
2: Yes. Yes.
0: Do you suppose what? that there would have been an actual model for the king? I, I don't know if there were models for any of the other figures in the painting, but I'm really curious if, if this was the portrait of an actual black or African model, an, an actual man that he might have known.
1: Well, I I, I think that it's a a distinct possibility that this is a portrait from the life. And the reason why I say that is that um, having looked through many examples of adorations and uh, images of black figures as the king in adorations, it's quite clear uh, that the ones that do have a black king in them, that the artist has no knowledge of an actual black person. And this is quite um, um, evident because the physiognomy, of the person uh, is not that of a person from that part of the world, but the physiognomy, in fact, usually in adorations, is of a European person who just simply has been coloured in to make them seem so they're black. So it does imply there's not uh, there's no knowledge on the part of the artist of an actual black person. However the physiognomy of this person in this picture looks very much to be an actual black person rather than somebody who's just been made up by the artist. So that would suggest that the artist has actually um, seen a black person uh, to make this picture. Therefore, this is a portrait from the life uh, rather than just an invention.
2: (laughs) all sorts of attempts to identify portraiture in this painting. uh, And there are only a Couple of things which you can definitely say about it. One, that the figure of Mary is not a portrait. He has painted her to look absolutely ideal. She has the features of the ideal beauty of the early 16th century. Uh, It's commonly suggested that the eldest uh, king could be a portrait of the donor because it is so specific down to a hairy wart on his cheek, for example, the thinning hairline, things like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Yes. In fact, uh, Richard is absolutely right. At one point, it was thought to be the um, Burgermaster of Antwerp, uh, who, of course, uh, and of course, Jan Goss- Gossart is a, a painter uh, who uh, did... Indeed, reside in Antwerp. So, um, but that, that theory has been thrown out. But you can see that uh, it is a possibility, and we do know that, in fact, patrons have, uh, in other examples of this uh, this um, this adoration, have inserted themselves in key positions. Uh, famously, of course, the Medici um, uh, have themselves depicted as the Magi uh, in the uh, uh, Benozzo Gozzoli fresco in the Palazzo Medici. So often the the patrons do try to insert themselves. So it seems a a reasonable argument that this could be a patron, but as yet there's no documentary evidence to say that this is actually a patron uh, that is in the picture. But uh, uh, I think Richard's absolutely right. Uh, uh, Some of these portraits are generic. And in fact, you couldn't really have a portrait of the Virgin who wasn't generic really, because when you uh, start to use actual people to paint the Virgin, you get into trouble as in fact, um, Caravaggio did uh, in the uh, 17th century.
0: I can't help but notice that there is writing on you know we think of this as purely a a painting um, Mm -hmm. setting the scene but there's actually writing on something that the black king is wearing is that correct.
1: Yes, there is indeed, uh, Gretchen. The the writing, of course, is on the the red piece of material hanging from the crown of the Black King. And indeed, on close examination, what it actually says is Gossart. It's actually the the artist's signature. Uh, There is also text on the um, person, the only other Black person in the picture, of course, is in the entourage directly behind the Black King. And uh, there's writing on his collar around his neck. And that also says, Gossart, the name of the artist.
2: I wanted to ask you something about this, because I find it absolutely fascinating that Gossard is so um, proud of this painting that he mm. signs the painting twice. He puts his name onto it twice. Mm. And in both cases, mm. he puts his he associates his name with the two people of colour in the painting. Mm. Yeah. Do you have any idea
1: why that might be? Well, indeed, I I have thought about this for quite some time. And uh, I think what's going on here is that um, what Gossart has done here is that he's actually purchased this person uh, for the purpose of models, of modelling. We know that thousands and thousands of black people were in Europe at this time and that many of them were brought to Europe, in fact, as slaves. And uh, indeed, we also know that Albrecht Dürer, uh, the painter from Nuremberg, and engraver, also used black models as well. And uh, we know that he purchased one of those models uh, as well. And indeed, there's a black chalk drawing by Albrecht Dürer of a black man. Uh, and now the reason why I brought in Dürer is because we know that Albrecht Dürer and Gossart were admirers of each other's works and their work in practices. So it is my assumption here that uh, Uh, Gossart has gone along with the same idea as uh, Dura and purchased himself a black man as a model. And that's where the name comes in. Now, we know that Gossart often signs his pictures. There are many examples of pictures by Gossart that are signed. But the signatures by Gossart are very, very rarely on actual people. In fact, mostly Gossart's signatures on his paintings are actually on objects rather than people, perhaps on the paving stone on the floor or perhaps on a piece of rock or something like that. This is a very rare occasion where Gossart signed his signature, uh, as Richard said, not only once but twice and on only the black people in the picture. Uh, It is my, um, uh, uh, as it were, assumption here that this is a question of Gossart. Not necessarily being proud of the picture or indeed the black people in it, but this possibly seems to be about Gossart not only signing the picture as the artist, but also signing the men, the black men, as being owned by the artists. These are stamps of ownership. Uh, And uh, the reason why I say that, because, of course, many slaves actually were given collars to wear, such as the man you can see behind the black king, and on those collars, in fact, often was not only the, uh, the slave's given European name, but also the name of his master as well on these slave collars. So the fact that Gossart's name appears on that collar of the black man and then appears again on the other um, black person who's a king, suggests to me a continuance of this tradition of the idea of the owner stamping his mark on those objects which he owns.
0: That is absolutely fascinating. And I know in later periods, we would see portraits of enslaved people with their slave collars on, particularly in the 17th and 18th centuries. And what you're showing is that this actually began earlier and that he would take pride, not only in the work of art itself, but also in his ability to buy or purchase people that he could use in these paintings. Yes. Are, there, are there any others in here that are based on actual portraits or actual people? You've mentioned the Virgin Mary um, and uh, the other man, but are there others? Uh,
2: Richard,
1: what uh, what would you say?
2: I, I think it's always very hard to tell the difference between uh painting a model and painting a portrait of someone Mm. is in some ways a matter of intent, whether you mean it to look like someone or you just want someone to make your person look real. I would think that on the whole, they're not all that specific uh, as facial types to be portraits.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, yes. Um, Because, yeah, some of these um, images, these faces, to me, look as though they might be generic faces, uh, such as the face of the man at the very far left, for instance, behind the black person who's got the turban on. That, for me, looks like a very much a generic portrait, such a portrait you'd see in in other Gossart images, or indeed other images at all. uh, Of course, because we know that um, at least... uh, 15,000 so-called model books survive from this period, and these model books actually had generic faces in, also generic animals as well in these model books, and often these model books were passed between artists uh, via artist studios, and they would have been the source for many of these um, faces that we can see here. And indeed, even the dogs in the foreground are generic as well. We know that, for instance, the dog on the right-hand side, the grey dog, actually is taken directly from an Albrecht Dürer engraving called St. Eustace. It's a direct copy. Uh, And Albrecht Dürer probably got that also from a model book. The dog on the left-hand side, the brown and white dog, is taken directly from an engraving by Martin Schoengar, an artist that, in fact, was very much admired by Jan Gossart and, indeed, uh, Albrecht Dürer. So there is some um, heavy degree of uh, genericism uh, in not only the faces, but also the two dogs, which are effectively a homage to uh, Albrecht Dürer and Martin Schoengauer.
0: This is is such a wonderful conversation, and I'm afraid we're nearly out of time. If there's a moment, you could just say quickly, why is the Virgin Mary always dressed in blue?
2: Richard, do you want to come in on that one? Well, there are various reasons. Um, One was that uh, the Catholic Church has always seen Mary as Queen of Heaven and the sky is blue. Uh, She was also associated with uh, the pole star. There was a medieval canticle, hail star of the sea, and um, of the sea, Maris uh, was a pun on Mary. Mary was seen as the guiding light, and the sea is also blue. Also, blue tended to be the most expensive color, and so it's a way of showing her respect. As it happens, this isn't the most expensive blue. Uh, ultramarine. It's actually um, a different blue, which was still fairly expensive, but not as expensive as ultramarine.
0: This is such a rich painting. We could talk for hours about this. I'm I'm fascinated by the fact that she's wearing sumptuous blue robes, and the Black King is also extravagantly or ornately and elegantly dressed. Um, I think we're really about out of time. Do we have time for one One last question.
2: I find it fascinating, despite what Leslie said, the dignity accorded to the black king in this painting and particularly for a number of groups I took around, the National Gallery school groups, uh, many of which were um, very uh, mixed racially, to show them a painting where a black man is given such dignity was really affirming to them and one of the things that i'm fascinated by is we know he's important because someone is holding his cloak but the person who's holding his cloak is white yes, so there's the implication that um, the color is not necessarily a sign of status always I think is quite a valuable thing to remember.
1: And uh, I I absolutely agree with Richard on that one. And the status of the Black King, of course, is um, is so much, somewhat enhanced by this fact of the resplendent clothes and of course as Richard has just said the white person behind him holding his robe and I think that um, Gossart clearly was very proud of this uh, person uh, not only does he look statuesque and, and very very important but Gossart even went to the trouble of enlarging his crown uh, Gossart clearly decided at some point that the crown wasn't grandiose enough and in fact added the conical section at a later part of uh, in the painting process and of course that was discovered from the National Gallery had a look at this uh, under, of course, uh, 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 magnifying glasses and all sorts of electronic equipment in terms of x-ray. And what they found, of course, is that they could see the brick wall behind the crown. So uh, clearly, Gossart was very proud of his Black King to, in fact, make him even more grandiose by adding that conical section.
0: I wish we had another hour to discuss this painting. It's been such a pleasure to hear you talk about it. It's a- certainly improved my understanding of what I'm seeing. So thank you very much, Leslie, and thank you, Richard. We'll end episode two of the PB2 podcast with reading by Patterson Joseph from Scripture that inspired the Gossard. Psalm 72,
3: verse 10. The kings of Tarshish and of distant shores will bring tribute to him. The kings of Sheba and Seba will present him gifts. Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route.
0: Do hope you've enjoyed this episode of the BP2 podcast. If you have, then please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. There you can keep abreast of upcoming shows and importantly for spreading the word it helps others find our podcast do please leave us a review and a rating goodbye till next time and thanks for listening